Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Pim Fox, it takes a lot to survive in the jungle, in particular the ETF jungle. I want to bring in my colleague, Eric Balchunas. He is an ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and he has great ideas. I love talking with Eric. I'm very glad you could join us. Uh, you know, we were talking yesterday about a, a couple of moves that Fidelity has, has made uh, and BlackRock has made to cut expenses as passive management takes a hold. How much are investors prioritizing the cheapness of funds over what they actually offer? Right now, it's it's everything. Uh, the, I, you know, the phrase I use is expense ratio is the new past performance chart. I think this really gets down to trust. I think investors just trust a fee more than a pretty chart right now. And I don't know if it's from decades of seeing the chart, buying into it, it not working out, because a lot of times investors will buy in it after the chart goes up, and you know it, it's hard to maintain our performance. Or it's just this spread of information that's been going on for about 10 years that the internet really helped to get out there, which is how important fees are in your, in, your, in your final performance. Fees are a big contributor, and it's the one thing you can control. So give us a sense of just how much more money has gone to the cheapest fees versus the most expensive. I'll throw out a few stats here. So last year, $286 billion went into ETFs. Over half of that money went to products charging nine basis points or less. Um, so that's one stat. So basically free. Basically free, yeah. I mean, if you look at um, – I, I did this uh, study where I you know, put everything into different buckets. It's going in active mutual funds, uh, funds that charge less than 40 basis points that are active, saw inflows. DFA, Vanguard are two big uh, uh, issuers in that area. Index funds that charge less than 20 saw more inflows than ones charged 40. So even within index funds, which are already passive, there's the cost migration. So I think when you look at the uh, – we put the fl- uh, every sh- mutual fund share class and ETF on a big spreadsheet, divided it into buckets by expense ratios, and we found that by the vast majority of money goes to 0 to 10 basis points. Then the next is, is 10 to 20, and it cascades down to about 40. Then at 40, 50, 60, it starts going down until plus 90 is the biggest outflow. So there's definitely a, a big correlation between the how much you charge and the flows you're seeing. Are the uh, ETF issuers as well as the brokerage firms, are they victims of their own success? And how many people does it take to run a business that is going in this direction? Right. Good question. I uh, have a piece out today that looks at the fact that you need human beings to do this. You also need human beings to analyze ETFs. It's not all robots, but I do think it's going to definitely put some pressure on um, the operations and the the human element of running an asset manager. Uh, We've already seen that. I mean, you wrote a story just yesterday calling, uh, you know, the the situation a pressure cooker for asset managers. And I think that's a pretty good term. Uh, So they're probably going to have to uh, do some things. Uh, You saw uh, Janice, I think this is the biggest, biggest example. Janice uh, got together with Henderson. So I think you're going to see more and more companies hooking up with other companies to get big enough so they can lower their fees and, and get scale going. And that'll be the new game for the next decade. All right. So you see this migration toward passive. Doesn't this sort of raise alarms that people are going at the wrong time? I mean, the more people go into passive, the more opportunities there ought to be for active investors to outperform, no? 
Yes and no. So the fact that everybody's going into passive has helped lift assets in the same in the indexes. So right now it's actually helping that there's this sort of you call we'll call it a mini bubble, right? A lot of people are going into passive. It's lifting up stocks in the S&P. In other words, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy yes. because the more people go in, the more stocks rise and then they they see good performance and they keep going in. Virtuous cycle. You talk to really smart managers that know their factors back and forth. They claim that I'm just going to sit in value and wait till this little mini passive bubble pops and I'll then I'll be the hero. The question is when because remember, this isn't just a move to passive, it's a cost migration. It just so happens that the cheapest stuff is you know, index-based. So passive is drawing those assets. The question is, when will this all play out? Right now, uh, passive investments only own about 12% of the stock market. So the majority is still in other things, mostly active. That, so this pendulum could swing a lot further. So if you're waiting, how long do you wait until this happens? The second thing is smart beta. You just made the sales pitch for smart beta, Rob Arnott. He says... Why would you want to buy an index where they reward price and they give more weighting to stuff that's bigger and pricier? You should come with me. I actually va uh, put higher weightings in value, things that are cheaper. So Smart Beta has funneled some money for people who are investing based on what you just said, but still using passive products to try to reward stocks that are uh, trading cheaper or are in a momentum spurt. That's the whole Smart Beta sales pitch. You know, as you talk, I just keep thinking, how much does passive have to own before they become a dominant force in a market? And I think this is one big question a lot of people are analyzing. There's not really a good answer to it. You might say that there is, uh, but, well. Well, we had an event. We had John Bogle. He said it could be 90% before it's a problem. Wow. Thanks very much. Uh, Eric Balchunas, he is an expert when it comes to ETFs. He's our senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, and you can follow him on Twitter at Eric Balchunas. Well, when we want to know more about municipal bonds, we call on one person, Joe Mysack. He is editor of Bloomberg Briefs for the Municipal Market, and he joins us now. Joe, thanks very much for being here. Let's talk about municipal bonds and what may or may not happen to the municipal bond market if the Federal Reserve deigns to increase interest rates 25 basis points in a couple of weeks. Tons of, uh, of actually good things uh, follow on the heels of, uh, of uh, higher yields, Pim. Uh, if we see the uh, AAA 10-year go to maybe 4%, I see things like insurance rising. Uh, there'll be the muni junk bond will revive. Swaps will come back. The auction rate securities market, which has been sort of dead for, um, uh, you know, since 2007, that'll probably revive. Um, we're probably going to see a little help for public pensions. And why don't I toss in a little bit uh, more stadium construction uh, to sort of go hand in hand with muni junk. And right now, the returns are uh, pretty good, right? Muni bond uh, returns in February were the highest since 2014, correct? Yes. And, uh, you know, it's still, you know, these are, the yields have been so low for so long. Uh, it's it's uh, almost in incredible how flat the market has been well, about two and a half percent in 10 years. Well, okay. So one place that has not been flat is with Puerto Rico municipal bonds. And we did get some news this week with the new governor, uh, Rocio, uh, were proposing a fiscal plan that included, uh, what was it? 
coverage of about two thirds of, of bond payments over the next, uh, I don't know, nine years or so. A little, little less than that. Uh, he he said about one point two billion. I think the uh, control board, the oversight, uh, the federal oversight uh, committee, uh, you know, they see him paying maybe eight hundred million. The the kind of surprising thing is he also asked for a complete stay on any litigation to be extended to the end of the year. So uh, bondholders are sort of up in arms about that. Yeah, but they don't seem to care. Like well, they, they, they didn't really respond much to this, did they? What the uh, bond prices? Yeah, the fact that, like you know, all of a sudden the amount that's covered under this fiscal plan is completely insufficient for what for to cover their losses, and people are just sort of like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's right now they're going to enter the negotiation period with the governor, and it's the the surprising thing about the governor is he campaigned as the uh, uh, as the man who is going to repay the debt, and now that he's in office, uh, repaying the debt is a lot less uh, appetizing, shall we say? Can we talk about some numbers? Because I was just looking at a comparison. Uh, California, which actually went uh, re-entered the green muni market uh, this week with an issuance. California for a 10-year, the average is 2.67%. That's obviously triple tax-free. New York uh, State, uh, 2.31%. And then you've got these outliers, Illinois, 4.57%. Percent. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about the volume of issuance, because supply also affects uh, the price. You know, this year we started off first year. I think January was around thirty billion. We're probably up to uh, over the uh, first two months, maybe fifty-five billion or so. And this is off a little bit. Of course, last year was a record pace. We had $426 billion. So this year we're off a little bit. It's a little slack. However, you know, you bring this up and uh, next week, all of a sudden we see a whole batch of state general obligation right. bonds, including $2.4 billion from California. So the states seem to be looking to take advantage of uh, maybe the last shot at rates this low. Uh, one reason why muni bonds initially sold off after President Trump was elected was because people were ratcheting uh, back their expectations for how high their taxes might go and expect- uh, expecting some uh, tax relief. This basically gives less of a benefit to municipal bonds, which are tax free. Now that we really have not seen a tax plan uh, and we don't know how soon it will be implemented, is that part of what's bringing people back to the muni market, too? Well, they have to put their money to work and you have, uh, you know, tax concerns. Um, but, you know, the the whole tax picture, I think, has sort of been put on the uh, back burner for a while. Like, like you say, it's something that instead of coming here in June, July or August, which is what the administration has talked about, most people really think it's going to be very late in the year, probably more like next year. The administration has a lot uh to worry about between now and then, especially the Health Care Act. Thanks very much for joining us. Joe Mysack, he is the editor of Bloomberg Briefs on Municipal Markets. Always uh, enjoy listening to you. And uh, of course, uh, munis, we're going to have to wait and see what the Federal Reserve does. And maybe this will increase the issuance of municipal bonds. Well, and this might actually help with the whole idea of infrastructure spending, uh, as President Trump has proposed, perhaps by a sort of a back channel with private money.
PIMFOX. There is so much data that is available today. Uh, there are some good statistics about just how much the NSA uh, has, for example, compared to uh, prior administrations during the communist era when people thought, you know, oh my gosh, the government has such a handle on what everyone's doing. Uh, but now we have so much data that we need to rely on algorithms to sort through it and find patterns. Uh, but are these algorithms really better at sifting through the data, albeit the massive troves that we have, and coming up with conclusions than humans. Uh, I want to bring in Kathy O'Neill, Bloomberg View columnist uh, and also uh, a mathematician who has been a professor, hedge fund analyst, and data scientist. And she wrote a fabulous column about how in the world of big data, more isn't always better. Kathy, uh, first of all, just to put this into perspective, just how prevalent are algorithms in decision-making processes throughout the economy at this point? How dependent are we upon them? That's a great question. Um, and people don't really realize this because a lot of the algorithms are actually happening behind the scenes and we can't even see them. But it turns out algorithms are being used on basically at every important decision in somebody's life, every time they have an option and they're sort of competing with other people. So that means, you know, college admissions, getting a job, even while you're on the job, how you're being evaluated, how much you pay for insurance, you know, how much you, you what kind of APR you get for credit, um, even things like policing and how long you're going to to jail if you get uh, if you if you're guilty, um, those are all determined by algorithms. Never mind all the things that are happening online, of course, and the political micro-targeting, all the ads you see on politics, which which are all algorithmically defined. So yeah, it's it's absolutely everywhere. Um, and what's especially concerning is the, the moments like when you're trying to get a job and you send your resume in, and there are algorithms that filter your resume um, based on you know it used to be just keyword searches like what kind of words did you say on your resume? But now it's all sorts of other kinds of correlative information about your resume. And you will never know that, just to be clear. Like, you'll either get a callback or you won't. But if you don't get a callback, you won't know why. And it might be because of an algorithm. I wonder if you could give us an example of an algorithm that's gone wrong. Yeah, well, I actually wrote a book about this called Weapons of Mass Destruction. Correct. Um, <laughs> Very good um, book. I did read it. Oh, oh, thank you so much, Pim. Um, so I, I would say a lot of algorithms go wrong um, for the people they're targeted, but not necessarily for the people that build the algorithms. So to be clear, um, one of the main points of the of the book is that um, what it, you know it depends on the, on your perspective on whether something's going wrong. But one of the uh, one of the examples in my book um, it comes from the world of education. Um, with, and they're teacher assessment algorithms, and teachers are basically being scored between zero and 100. Um, and I think that is probably a gr the best example of a terrible algorithm because uh, it's very inconsistent. I found a teacher who got a 96 one year and a six another year. Um, and another teacher got fired for a bad score, even though she thinks that her score was artificially low because of other teachers cheating. Um, and there's, I mean, I think the critical point about these algorithms isn't that they're bad, because of course there's bad algorithms out there. The critical point is that they're being used as if they're scientifically, they have scientific authority. Um, so people trust them in a kind of under um, over-exaggerated way because of their mathematical nature. And so that's one of the things I was trying to get go after in my book. As a mathematician, I don't want people to blindly trust mathematics. The, the point of mathematics is that it's actually supposed to clarify things, not obfuscate them. Well, to that point, how can uh, companies and uh, universities make sure that their algorithms are 
doing the right thing? I mean, what's the check here on how to make the algorithms better? The answer isn't necessarily for a human being to be trying to sift through all the data themselves, because at this point, it's that's an unsustainable solution, given the amount of data that a lot of these uh, algorithms are tasked with uh, processing. Absolutely true. And I'm not, I am not anti-algorithm whatsoever. What I'm trying to um, suggest um, is that we create standards of evidence that the algorithms are meaningful, that they're, they have statistical meaning, but that they're also that they're fair and they're, they're legal. Um, a lot of the algorithms I examine in my book actually, I think, are probably illegal, but because regulators don't know how to examine algorithms, um, they're get, you know, companies are getting away with stuff. So in particular, with the um, algorithms for hiring, they're kind of replacing their HR um, divisions with algorithms without making sure that all those all the algorithms are actually, you know, they reflect fair hiring practices, which there's plenty of laws around that. So my point is, like, we need to create evidence and to demand evidence from the people that build these algorithms and use all these algorithms that what they're doing is actually legal and fair. A point to you. Um, is it possible that what's going on is algorithms are being used to cut costs in a corporate setting and that the reason it's being done is because then there is no personal accountability for the result? That is, you nailed it on the head. Like, I... I observed just many, many examples of these algorithms that are what I call weapons of mass destruction. They're very powerful, they're secret, and they're destructive. And one of the things I noticed sort of after writing the book is that there's a kind of certain characteristics of a situation that are ripe for these kinds of algorithms. And it's exactly what you just said. It's when people don't want to take personal responsibility for tricky decisions. Tricky decisions like, is this a good teacher or not? Is this a good applicant or not? Those are tricky. And they know that it can go wrong. And they would like to say, it's not not me, it's the algorithm. And that's when the situation is right for, for a pretty nasty thing to happen. Well, it certainly reminds me of uh, the, the Stanley Kubrick uh, movie, uh, Dr. Strangelove. Because, uh, right, I mean, the Absolutely. doomsday machine, it just take, it takes over and there's no way to really uh, get a human being in between that and, uh, and the dire consequences. Thank you very much. Kathy O'Neill is a Bloomberg View columnist, and uh, you can follow her on Twitter at mathbabe.org. Yes, indeed. And she is also the author of the book Weapons of Math Destruction. A lot has been said about President Trump's immigration policies, particularly as they pertain to Mexico and our other uh, southern neighbors. I want to bring in someone who could talk more about that. Hector Barreto, who is chairman of the Latino Coalition and former U.S. Small Business Administrator under George W. Bush. Uh, Hector, I'm glad you could join us. First, I want to start with a question. How different are President Trump's proposed immigration policies to the ones uh, that were implemented under former President Barack Obama? I think we're saying uh, under Bush, who I worked for, um, you know, the policies are very different. Obviously, every administration has a different take on it. We don't know all the specifics about what the immigration policy is going to be, especially going forward with regards to countries like Mexico. You know, I work for President Bush, and the first thing he did when he uh, got into office was he put forth an initiative with Mexico called the Partnership for Prosperity. We worked on that for eight years while I was uh, in the administration, uh, less so uh, in the last administration. In 
terms of things like the Partnership for Prosperity. Obviously, there was never comprehensive immigration reform under the Obama administration. And we don't know what the uh, immigration reform proposals are going to be uh, in in this administration. Do you think that immigration policies need to be reformed in the U.S.? Absolutely. uh, 100%. Well, I mean, you know, I think everybody stipulates that our immigration system, our policies towards immigration don't really work for anybody. They don't work for the immigrants that are here. They don't work for the economy. They don't really work for anybody. So, you know, everybody basically says it's a broken system and we need to fix it, but nobody can coalesce around what that looks like. And so that's why we keep kicking this can down the road. Remember, we haven't had immigration reform in the United States since 1986. That was President Reagan. So we've been 30 years dealing with a lot of these issues. And I, I think a lot of people on both sides of the aisle are very frustrated and and hopeful that we can get something done in this administration. Hector, I want to just bring uh, a little bit more detail to the conversation. You previously, before your uh, role in uh, business on a large scale, you worked in your family's restaurant, mm-hmm. uh, import-export business, construction company, and so on. In 2016, U.S. Hispanic buying power was larger than the gross domestic product of Mexico. And it is growing substantially. Uh, We're talking about a buying power of about $13.9 trillion, right? That's in in 2016. Uh, That's the total. Is there a way for this immigration plus a, I don't know if you want to call it immigration, but a, a NAFTA uh, revamp, trade policy revamp, that could actually make that an even more uh, a stronger figure. How can it help the the businesses? Uh, there's no doubt about it. And look, I you know, I. I serve in a lot of different capacities. I'm also on the board of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Correct. This has been a major, major focus and initiative for us for many, many years. And these things are connected. Uh, you know, you were talking about the family businesses. You know, I'm the son of an immigrant. My father, Hector Barreto Sr., was an immigrant from Mexico in the 50s, and he, he was the founder of the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. We've learned about these issues uh, all my life uh, in our family. We know how important that they are, and they are interconnected. Look, purchasing power in the United States, just Hispanics in the United States, is $1.5 trillion. My father used to always say, you know, the Hispanics in the United States have more purchasing power than all the the, the Hispanics in Mexico and, and a lot of countries in Latin America. And, and that is going to grow. Hispanic business, which I'm very passionate about, four million companies that are generating close to seven hundred billion in revenues, and they could double every five years. And many of those have connections and linkages back to Mexico and other parts of Latin America. So there, you know, there are a lot of reasons we should have immigration reform, and there's a lot of reasons we ought to look at some of these trade deals. But the first reason is it's in our self-interest in this country, and so hopefully we're going to see some leadership coming out of Congress, coming out of the White House, and it needs to be bipartisan. There's no way, we've learned this over 30 years, that you can make this kind of change without having buy-in from both sides. You know, as you talk, it's a very optimistic uh, view of things, coalition, bringing together. It doesn't really mesh with some of the rhetoric that we've heard. We've heard about building the wall. We've heard about those uh, bad hombres. Uh, We've heard about a lot of things from President Trump to get out of this country. We've heard about ICE uh, agents going and rounding people up. I mean, are your members scared? 
Uh, well, there's a lot of people that are scared, not just in my community, but there's a lot of members in my in my group who are also very optimistic. And, you know, business people tend to be optimistic. We see the glasses half full. We wouldn't go into business right. if, no, we, if we didn't if we didn't if we didn't think that. Understood. But do you think that as as such right now, are, are people worried about their businesses getting harmed because of exporting uh, power to Mexico and a possible uh, deterioration of the relationship? that the U.S. has with Mexico. Look, uh, you probably know this, is that uh, small business confidence in the United States is up, you know, almost at historic highs right now. And it's not historic highs because they feel that their businesses are going to be failing. They felt that over the last eight years. They felt there were all these barriers. But when they hear the administration saying, hey, look, we get it. We've got to lower regulations on you. We've got to lower taxes on you. We've got to make health care easier for you to get. And yes, we've got to renegotiate trade deals because you know what? Small businesses are the ones that don't participate participate in trade deals where 90% of all the companies that do international trade and we're less than 30% of the trade dollars. And that's not lost on those 27 million small businesses. So, you know, uh, we hear a lot of things and it goes back and forth. We're, we're trying to focus on the things that are actually happening, the real things that are happening, not the stuff that, you know, gets scandalized. And every day there's a, there's a new threat to, to the world as we know it. I mean, we're going to be paying very close attention and we're going to be calling balls and strikes. We're not going to Agree with everything that comes out of Washington, D.C., but where we can, where we can help create that environment so we can start more small businesses instead of having them fail as they have over the last eight years, we're very interested and focused on that. We have to have a seat at the table. We have to be speaking to the people that are in power. Uh, not everybody agrees, and not every, that's why we have elections. But after the election is over, it would be irresponsible and we think malpractice for us to just to check out for the next four years. Hector, I want to thank you very much for coming in and uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, this is a very important topic. Uh, Hector Barreto is the uh, chairman of the Latino Coalition. They are based in uh, Irvine, California. And Washington, D.C. And in Washington, <laughs> D.C., well, of course. I'm, I'm sure you're there quite a bit these days. We are. We have a major event next week. So thank We're, you tell, for having me. I'll give you 10 seconds. Tell us about it. We're having a policy event, Latino Coalition, SBA administrators coming over. The White House at a very high level will be participating. We've got a half a dozen congressmen. And if you're in Washington and interested in attending a small business event with the fastest growing segment of small business, you got to be at the Latino Coalition next Thursday in Washington, D.C. All right. See there? We give we give you the little plug. That's Thank a you. good thing for you. <laughs> you know, I, I, Lisa, <clears throat> excuse me. I was noting that, you know, Mexico is no longer the top origin country among the most recent immigrants to the United States. Uh, China and India have overtaken Mexico as the most common countries of origin. Who knew? There you go. Hector Barreto, thank you very much. Once again, chairman of the Latino Coalition. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.